Welcome to Think or Swim Live on the Stunt Show, coming to you live from, once again, the Lower East Side and not from sunny Southern California today, and heard around the world on NahumSiegel.com and the NSN app. Get on that. If you haven't got the app, please do so, so that you can listen to our shows, comment, and participate through the app. This stunt show is heard every Thursday, 1 Eastern, and as I am fond of reminding everyone here, 10 Pacific, with the cast of Rotating Hosts, keeping you entertained. And this week, it is my turn to sit in the stunt show chair. My name is Eliyahu Fink, and aside from hosting a radio show, I was the rabbi at the show on the beach in Venice, California, for almost seven years. And... Um, besides for the shul on the beach, I also have a shul on the internet. My blog, thinkorswim.com, and my Facebook page have become active destinations for conversation about issues facing our communities and anything else, really, that is on my mind. So what is on my mind? What are we going to talk about today? I have the pleasure, once again, of sitting across from Avrami. This is not something that I want you to get used to, Avrami. I will not be here every stunt show, but the last couple times have been great. Yes, it's a pleasure to see you. And it's also a pleasure that you can see me because usually I can't. I like the you. It looks like you got a little bit dressed up than as I have, as I have seen. So it shows a mutual respect, which is nice. I like how um, my reputation is such that dressed up is that I'm wearing jeans and a shirt. Well, I can't see the jeans, just the shirt. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, the shirt. You know, it's it's perfect for like talk television too. You could sit at a desk and everyone will think that you're wearing a nice shirt. We're uh, dressed for radio. Well, we could do better than that if we were dressed for radio. So our topic today, Avrami, and everybody else out there, the only person I know for sure that has to listen to this show is Avrami, so that's why I can address you directly. Otherwise... Should I be facing you? Is it okay that I'm not facing you? I don't want you to think I'm uh, ignoring you. But, no, no, uh, it's, it's radio. We don't have to face each other. It works whether you're looking at me or not. All right. So our, our topic today is uh, provocatively titled, What's Next for Orthodox Judaism? And uh, the implication here is not that something needs to happen next. We'll discuss later whether that is the case. Our, our implication here is that there are always things that are happening next in Orthodox Judaism. And what I mean by next is not to, the discur- to, to discard that which is present and what is current, but next means that things happen over time to change a little bit of the flavor and the style and the way that we approach our observance of Orthodox Judaism. We're not discussing what's next for observance in Orthodox Judaism. We think that's going to stay the same. It's been the same for a long time. What we are discussing here is what's next in the multicultural version of Judaism that we have today, where you have people from all over the world living together in Jewish communities. You have people that have different heritage um, from different states and towns and countries across Europe and Asia and Africa. And now we are all together living in America and Israel and other places that have become like melting pots for Orthodox Judaism. So we've done this. We've kind of built our new community of people living together, or at least close enough together. And now we have to figure out, well, what's next? Because we want people from 500 years from now who say, well, yeah, my great-grandparents were from America. What was American Judaism? What, what was that flavor? The flavor can't just be that it's a mixture of all the other flavors. We need to make our own flavor. You know, my kid loves to go to the, 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 the restaurants and they have like the fountain sodas, where it's 7-Eleven. He likes to put a little bit of every single soda flavor into his drink. And, you know, some parents might discourage this because it actually sounds like it tastes disgusting. But I always think of this, isn't this nice? This guy, my little six-year-old, he wants to enjoy all the flavors of soda. Now, it doesn't taste good when you put them all together, but the thought is there. The thought is there to try and appreciate every flavor. So I think that that is 
close to what we're talking about when we talk about how to appreciate all the flavors of Orthodox Judaism today. Yeah, you can't do them all at once. That, that doesn't taste good. But there is a thought there. There is something that, that there is to try and figure out a way to, to try and taste as much as we can, or at different times, try and taste as much as we can. So we will be joined today, in a little while, by a dear friend, Rabbi Daniel Katz. Um, Rabbi Katz, you know, a man that really, he, he defies introduction. He's, he's introducing, introducing Rabbi Katz would minimize Rabbi Katz. Something is making a lot of interesting noise here. Does anybody in the studio know why we are listening to this? <laughs> Somebody's computer started to make noise, and it was not mine, so I had to roll over, not roll over, roll my seat over and press mute on the other person's computer who probably should be listening to this right now. Sorry about that. So I was saying, Rabbi Daniel Katz defies uh, introduction because he is a man that encompasses much more than words can describe. But for me, it's a unique pleasure because Rabbi Katz and I have been friends for 10 years at least. We met when um, both of us were living a different lifetime ago. As a, maybe we, we each met different, a lifetime ago, right? He, met, he, was, he was a different lifetime ago, and I was from a different lifetime ago uh, in 2005. We met in Israel. Rabbi Katz was studying it. He's teaching a little bit at Asia Torah, and I was a campus rabbi at USC in Los Angeles. And we have developed a very close connection. We hit it off immediately 10 years ago. We reconnected a few years ago back in Los Angeles. I love him, and I know you will love him too. So how are we going to get to Rabbi Katz? What's he going to bring to the table? What's he going to talk to us about that we have to have uh, Rabbi Katz on the, on the program today? The truth is he could talk about anything. We'd have Rabbi Katz talk about whatever. we talk about the weather, the Lower East Side weather. Isn't that the most popular topic of conversation at the Nachum Eagle Network? So Rabbi Katz could probably talk about it forever. That's how good he is. But we want to get him to talk about the stuff that I think more people are interested in than the Lower East Side weather. And that's going to be what's next for Orthodox Judaism because Rabbi Katz is actually at the forefront of a wave that is moving forward in Orthodox Judaism that has completely upended many of the assumptions and the ways that people deal with Orthodox Judaism on a spiritual and a soulful level. I will introduce more about Rabbi Katz specifically soon. I just wanted you to have a feeling for why Rabbi Katz is going to be joining us. So when we talk about the evolutions within Orthodox Judaism, we talk about in the spirit and the taste and the flavor and the way that things kind of feel and what our focus is outside of the observance. So American Judaism has not yet defined anything as its own. What we've done really is taken some things from what we've had in the past. We've actually changed a lot of things from the past as well, but we've only done it in, in almost like a defensive way. And what I mean by a defensive way is that when we when we do talk about things that are different, almost all of them are reactions to fear over assimilation or fear over hearing the wrong thing, seeing the wrong thing, being in the wrong place. And a lot of the restrictions that have been added to Orthodox Judaism, in, in not, and they're not halakhic restrictions, a lot of them are like communal restrictions, whether they're in schools or shuls or just like the things that we have in our social communities that automatically get, get attached to our, um, our decision-making process. Those things are definitely changes, but they're all reactive. What I mean by reactive is that they don't actually create something new. They just protect what we have. But we've had many, many opportunities throughout the history of Orthodox Judaism and, and all of Judaism, really, to try and develop things that were consciously created to address needs and issues within our communities. 
So the biggest and the easiest example to talk about when we discuss this particular issue is Hasidus. And a lot of people today look at Hasidus in a way that's completely different from what Hasidus, not only what, what is intended to be, but what it really, really is. What do you, you know, Rami, what do you think of in the most, give me the most like politically correct, but stereotypical answer of what, what, when I talk about, when I say, when you, what do you think of when you think of Hasidus? Um, having a, um, one, uh, spirit, a focal person that sort of guides you through your, uh, your religious observance and your, um, yeah, and your relationship with God. So you're speaking about the connection to God comes through the Rebbe, that kind of thing. That's generally how it's, uh, yeah, he's the guide. I don't know if it's not, he's not doing it for you, but he's definitely, you're, you're watching what he's doing, you're getting his advice on what you're supposed to be doing, and so he's, I guess, assumed to be the one that's got some kind of clue in or some kind of something in to what's either because, you know, he just has that connection to the generations past of that Hasidism or whatever. Which is a great answer because I think that's what a lot of people associate Hasidus with. A lot of them associate it with the Rebbe, whichever Rebbe it might be. Another thing I think a lot of people associate with Hasidus, and maybe they don't always articulate it this way, but you know, tell me what you think about this, Avrami, is insularity. Living in a community that is bounded by people that are of the same Hasidus or of close, closely connected Hasidus groups. So if you have, let's say, a community like Kiryas Joel, or you have a community like, um, like, uh, you know, uh, Kiryat Sans in Israel, or a community like Mansi, where you have like Vizhnitz and Samar. There are places in the world where you have Hasidic, Hasidic communities, and they kind of live amongst themselves. And that insularity does it does have a lot to do with the way that they treat the world. They speak language. They speak English as a second language. Yiddish is primary. They dress in a way that that, that identifies them as looking different, and they consciously do so. And I think that insularity plus the Rebbe are probably the two hallmarks of what we think about when we think about Hasidus today. What do you think about that? Yeah, it makes sense. Oh, you're easy. So hopefully out there in the uh, radio land, you guys are also either agreeing with me or disagreeing with me. If you disagree, send me an email. If you have my phone number, send me a text. But we would uh, we'd definitely love to hear from you. But I think that these things kind of identify what Hasidus is to the, to the mainstream, to the, to, the, to, to the person that's not really consciously thinking about this really, really in depth and thinking about what Hasidus means. But what Hasidus is supposed to mean, and the reason it's supposed to mean this is because this is what it was is really a way of thinking, a philosophical, spiritual approach to the world and to Torah. And this has built what we have today in the Hasidic communities, maybe consciously, but probably a little bit subconsciously. And the teachings and the ideas, a lot of it have come from that world. But it's not in the in the sense that that has become the focal point of the Hasidic community. The exception to this, of course, is Chabad, where in the Chabad community, first of all, there is insularity in Crown Heights, but in general, there is an insularity um, in any small community that has like-minded people. The thing that makes them different from other Hasidic groups, and this is why many people like um, don't usually think of Hasidic Jews and, they, and, and then think of Chabad because their Hasidus is so different. But one of the things that's different is insularity for many of them that live in the out-of-town areas. But the other thing that's different about them is that they actually do focus on the philosophy and the thinking and the spirituality of the Hasidic um, way of life and not just on the way of living based upon the way that um, was handed down as a chassid from a rebbe or as a way of living a life that's basically do what everybody else around you is doing. They consciously study and try to learn the philosophy and the way of life that the Hasidic masters of the past taught. And a lot of it is insights into human psychology. A lot of it is thinking about the way that a person makes choices and lives their life with 
the challenges and difficulties, and it's like a very realistic in some ways approach to life. But what happens is the realistic approach is then superimposed on top of that. You have the Kabbalistic, mystical parts of Hasidic thought, especially within Chabad, that kind of dictate and try and help a person make sense out of all the questions they have and the struggles they're having in their own lives. So that was one revolution because it wasn't like that before. Of course, you had Hasidus in thought, but you didn't have what wasn't called Hasidus. And you had uh, you had Arizal, which was just before Hasidus. But he was thinking was what evolved into Hasidus. And he didn't have a way of life. He just had some students and writings. And it became a movement later on. Uh, Torim Derech Eretz is another example. Right? Torim Derech Eretz is famously associated with Rav Samson Rafael Hirsch and the uh, and the German Jewish community that was not the German Jewish community of the Chassam Sofer. I mean, you could just basically divide it upon those lines. And Rav Hirsch built a kind of Judaism that was that was based on the same things that had been taught to everybody until then, but the focus and the way that it felt was much more academic, and it was focused much more on a person being a Kaddish, sanctifying the Gashmias, the physical things, and sanctifying the things of 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 where the challenges in life are with spirituality. And his approach, which is certainly rooted in other things, is is why we have a, a version of Judaism, an Orthodox Judaism, that feels a little bit different. You would never confuse a person from the community of Torah im Darach with a person from the Hasidic community, as long as they're being true to their communities, as being from the same sect, let's say. They just have completely different outlooks on life. Both of them have fealty to halachic Judaism. Both of them feel that they have to do what the Torah says, and they feel like they have to do what halacha dictates. But the way that it looks, and the way that it tastes, and it feels, and, and it appears, is so different that you could put them next to each other, and a person might think that they are from different religions even. And they're not. So what we have today is basically people living, you know, smaller versions of what they lived in the past. The way of living in the past for Hasidic Jews was, was let's say, X. Now today you have, like, that's X watered down a little bit, but added in with this a little bit, added in with that. And if you have Torim Der Haaretz people, they're not living it the way that it was lived in Germany in the 18th, 19th century, of course. They're they're living it the way that it's lived today. It's evolved a little bit. But again, it's still based on that previous thing. It's not a revolution at all. It's not something that's new. It's not something that has been developed for the here and now. It's something that's based upon and, and developed for the past. And it's good to evolve, and it's good to make those things feel more current. But they are not... Um, they are not something that is native, I would say, to American Orthodox Judaism or even currently Israeli Orthodox Judaism. You have a, you have a, you have also um, religious Zionist Jews, right? Religious Zionist Jews, they're not like the guys from Torah and Baruch from the Rav Hirsch community. They're not like the Hasidic community. They do have a focus on mysticism based upon their teachings of Rav Cook. They also feel like um, their world is also kind of dictated by um, the the things that happen in Israel, a lot of it is focused on Israel, whereas a lot of the other groups, what happens in Israel is important, but it's not the thing that determines their connection to Judaism. So that all also feels different than the focus of Torim Derech Eretz and the focus of Hasidus. So the, this was also a modern invention. You didn't have a thing called religious Zionism in the 12th century. You didn't. You had 12th century Judaism. And we don't know what everything was called. Not everything has a name, but we do know that things have evolved and flavors have developed. You can even see this, interestingly enough, in the writings of the Rishonim, I think. You know, you have the Spanish scholars. They were like halachists. You have like the Rif, famously in the back of the Gemara. Like, that's like the, the shorter version of the Gemara where he codifies the law. You have the Rambam also talking about halacha. And they're from like the Sephardic Spanish world. But then you have like the people like, the, like Rashi, who's not really telling you halacha, but he's kind of trying to help you along and explain the Talmud as, as, as an explainer. And with, the, with Rashi, you have people like 
you know, it's close, but maybe the, the Ritva and, and Rabbi Nunisim, these are other rabbis, but they're also from Central Europe in a certain sense. Um, and then the third type is you have the Tosafists, the French scholars, and there are students from that, from after that, who not only were not busy with halachic questions, which they kind of talked about a little bit very rarely, and they weren't either explaining like the words of the Talmud or just trying to help you read it. They were, as uh, famously the Yamashal Shlomo uh, explains in his Hakadama, in his in his in his introduction to his book, that Rabbeinu Tam, who was the first of the Tosavists, he made the entire Talmud into a sphere because he would ask questions from one place to the next and try to resolve them and come up with new ideas based on their questions that were contradictions or were issues that had to be resolved between two sugios, between two different topics, and then that created what we call today in yeshiva world, lumdus. So that's another third way. And even those things were like, they were somewhat geographically dependent and also somewhat uh, temporally dependent. And, and then those flavors developed based upon the world that in which they lived. So what what I would love to see and what I'm trying to figure out in some ways, but also trying to help happen is a way of creating or just developing an American version of Orthodox Judaism that is authentic to who we are in American Orthodox Judaism. And as American Orthodox Jews, we have unique features. This is the world uh, very different from the world of at least my great-great-grandparents that lived in Europe. You know, all you hear about in the history of our European Jewish communities is persecution and fear and uncertainty about uh, the future. People do not live like we live today at all, and we know this, but what we've done with this is basically said we don't trust it. We don't trust that we're living comfortably here. We don't trust that we're okay here. And because we don't trust that, we've you know, developed certain thoughts and attitudes about American and the world at large, American Americans and the world at large, which you know maybe are a little bit... Um, Paranoid in, in the worst sense, but also just a little cynical and maybe in a good sense. So that has not happened yet either. We have not evolved into what we would say American Judaism would say is like, you know, we're, we're not, we don't have to feel those fears that our European ancestors felt. Maybe there are fears that we have here, but they cannot be the same as our European, uh, great, 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 great parents for those of us from the European world. And so what we've done here today is like we've, we've evolved from that. American Orthodox Judaism is mostly built by the rabbis who came from Europe in the early 20th century. And then through the last hundred years, it's been building and evolving from that. And there's such a focus on fear of the others and the outside. And um, anti-Semitism plays a huge role in a lot of the way we teach and think about Orthodox Judaism. We shouldn't not teach that. Of course we should. But the question is, if that is what we are teaching today because today that is our Judaism, or we're teaching that today because that is the Judaism of the past. So when we think about American Judaism, we're really what we're really seeing is an evolution from a kind of Judaism that never really anticipated a Judaism like ours. There was no like thought of the future where everybody would be able to practice their religion without persecution from the church. That's a new thing. And that should have something to do with how we think about Judaism as well today. Another thing that's different about America is that um, it's not even America, but there's, there's a, a different world today. Like you cannot, you cannot expect people to not know about things outside of Judaism. And there's such a focus in the old days of not reading Sfarim Chitzonim, reading books from the outside, not reading books of philosophy from the outside. And yeah, I mean, first of all, the rabbis did, many of them did, so it's it's somewhat confusing to many people. But more than that, it was possible to do that. Now it is literally impossible. I mean, you walk out of your house, you're going to find things that are not from within the Orthodox Jewish community unless you live in the most insular of communities. And that has its own set of problems. So 
our American Judaism is now being completely informed by the information that is being transmitted to us. And now it's not just information that you can pick up from a newspaper or from seeing things or meeting people in the street or at work. Now you're hearing things and seeing things that you can do by choice. You can just Google. And by the way, you might be Googling the thing that you want to see that's Jewish or for the Torah approach. And what you find and what you hear is something that is completely not Jewish. So now we need to have an approach that actually deals with the challenges of outside information. And if you're dealing with the challenges of outside information, you're not going to have a lot of help from the previous generations because a lot of them didn't have to deal with this. So dealing with this for the first time has given us new challenges, but also many amazing opportunities because now you have people that are learning from many places that they may have not had access to before, right? How many people do you think read the Rambam's writings the week after he wrote them? Very few. And if they did, they were probably from his local community. And so, so that's like one way of like living a Jewish life and, you know, you know, connecting to your Judaism because you, you're a student of the Rambam, you live nearby. But now you're talking about a world where you don't have that option of like not hearing about other things from the outside. And more than that, people have the opportunity. It's not even a problem always. It's an opportunity to hear from things on the outside that can help you and totally change the way that you approach life and Judaism. And sometimes it can come from a Jewish source. Maybe it come from a non-Jewish source too. That's, some, that's something too. And that's something that's new. We never really had that before. And because we didn't have that before, um, it's challenging to try and assimilate our approach to Judaism from the old days. And now that we have opportunities to hear things from the outside and compare them and study them and try and learn about them, we can also then go back to our sources and see if they appear in our sources. So I'm not giving any answers here. I'm just presenting the issue. The issue is simply that there is not a, there is no, there is at this moment, there does not exist. What we, we what, what, I'm having a hard time saying this at the very moment. I don't think we could say with certainty that we have developed or can even identify a version of Orthodox Judaism that is native to the 21st century and the modern democratic world. And that is a problem. The biggest reason that it's a problem is because there are many things that people can find on the outside that address and handle problems that they're dealing with on the inside. But the inside has not yet developed answers to those questions and to those problems. And so what they have to do is go to the outside and find the answers to those problems. And because we have to go out on the outside to find the answers to those problems, maybe a person finds that that undermines their Judaism. Or what do they need their Judaism for if the answers are all on the outside too? And when that happens, you, you, you're, you're asking people to make a tough choice, right? Do you want to stay with the thing of your heritage? Or are you going to look to the outside and get to the things that you're getting answers to that, that are helping you solve your problems? Or maybe you don't have problems. Maybe you, the, the, the answers within Orthodox Judaism, the things that we're good at, are not things that you struggle with. And maybe you would have not known that there's such a thing as not struggling with those things if you hadn't been exposed to them before, but now we know. So one thing that really overlaps between some of the work that I do and the work that our guest, Rabbi Daniel Katz, who was joining us in just a moment, does, is to try and help people, especially people, but really anybody, but especially people that are clinging to Judaism or feeling a connection to their Judaism but they're not quite sure how to do it, and they're not quite sure what what they can use from the outside, what they can use from the inside, and how they can connect to their Judaism. And the thing that's beautiful about this is actually something that I read in um, some of the some of the materials that Rabbi Katz uses to try and explain to people what his what his project is. 
is that if you know you go to school if you're in a yeshivish school which I didn't attend as a as a kid but I know that my brothers and my my son did for a little while that you know, sometimes you attend a school and the way that they get kids to get interested in learning is with the outside things what I mean by that is like okay we want kids not to watch TV so we'll have a contest no TV for two weeks if you watch no TV for two weeks we'll take you on a trip now that's really stupid in my opinion because you're not teaching kids that there's value in not watching TV. You're telling kids that if you do some magic trick for me, if you run through some obstacle course or jump through some hoop, I'll give you a prize. There's nothing that's learned about that. There's nothing internal. There's not something that happens to the person. And that really is like what also happens in the Kirov world. As Rabbi Katz writes, like we lured people to Israel with free trips and sushi and iPhones. And those are things that are cool. And maybe you'll get somebody to come on a trip because of that. But there are people that are affiliated but also unaffiliated Jews who are speaking spiritual direction, as he writes. And they're looking for a religious experience that is powerful and meaningful and is conscious and is full of things like self-development and introspection and seriousness about life. And that's what the Ravod Hashem becomes. That's how they serve God. It's not like that's an outside thing that you have to go to read the self-help books in the in the uh, in the corner at Barnes and Noble, it's now within the Judaism. And if that's how you think that not watching TV is valuable, well, what you should be doing if you're teaching that to kids is not by giving them a prize and leaving it at that, and just turning it into some sort of like way of getting the prize. You should be explaining and helping them to 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 obtain and appreciate the value and the benefits of using that time for something else. So let's say the kid doesn't watch TV, but instead they're just playing on their iPad. Um, Jetpack all day, right? Jetpack Joyride? Everybody plays that game? No, I, I'm just kidding. My kids like that one. So that game is not better than watching TV. It's the same. I mean, maybe it is, maybe it's not, but you're not using, you're not teaching kids how to use their time well. So what I'm getting at here is that this is where Rabbi Katz and I overlap the most. We both believe that Judaism itself should be meaningful. It should not be third-party things. It should not be outside things that give it and superimpose upon it meaning that make it something that's interesting because you want the prize or you think that that's going to get you interested in it. It's true. You do have to have that sometimes. But we have to instead figure out a way to focus on the value and the meaning that helps people right now today. And there is stuff in there. That's that. It's that easy. It's right there. And it's part of Torah because many of the brilliant people who wrote Torah, who wrote the things that we find in our, in our Jewish writings, had this inner wisdom. They were brilliant at this. And they have ways of showing through Torah thoughts and ideas, these messages and these lessons. And if it's not through the old ways, we can make our own. We can find things within Torah, within the sources that help us to develop a Judaism that is relevant for our lives today, that is connected to halacha. But more importantly, because the halacha is we're taking that for granted. More importantly, it's making a version of Orthodox Judaism, a version of Judaism in general, that is giving people meaning and assistance and help and pride and love for what they're doing today without the need for prizes. The prize is the thing itself. And with that introduction, I invite uh, Rabbi Daniel Katz, who is joining us from Israel, actually, to um, to join the conversation here for a moment. Rabbi Katz, I mentioned earlier that uh, we go a way back uh, for, each, for the two of us. It was a lifetime ago. It was a lifetime for you ago. And it was a lifetime for me ago. I know that's not proper English or grammar, but, you know, we're, we're doing the best we can. Makes sense. So it's interesting that we reconnected. Uh, we, I remember a deep connection with you and the, and the love for what you're doing then. And, you know, uh, we're, we're both not the same we were then. And then we reconnected a few years back and we both love what we're doing each, with, with, with what we're doing now. So 
I love that we have that um, that connection through the two different lifetimes that we've lived so far in our young in our young lives. So first of all, um, it's it's a pleasure to have you here, and I've not really talked about the exact thing that you have. I've just talked about where you're, what direction you're coming from, and why we're introducing you into this conversation. So I would like to invite you for a moment to just give us your uh, your quick pitch on what you call the Elevation Project. And this project is really something that is developed to to give people what we were, what we were talking about in the last few moments. I, I know you're on the line listening. So mm-hmm. maybe just describe for a moment how you, how you, how you, tr- how you tried to arrive at this, why, why it came about. Um, I know it's a very interesting, you know, some interesting stories about how people were looking to the outside for this. So maybe give a little bit of background to our audience about why you personally developed this kind of thinking in the Elevation Project. Fine, Beseda. First of all, good morning, I think. And good morning, America. And uh, it was really interesting to hear you kind of represent me over the last half an hour. And I feel well represented by you. So I'd like to thank you uh-huh. for those kind of words. Um, it was a long time when we first met. I always say it's, it's a, you know, a different life, a different past life in the same body. It's what it feels like. Um, I myself, I'm not sure you're supposed to say this on air, but I, I'm Zoycha to be a Balchuva. And, uh, and when I was 25, 26, I really had no Jewish connection at all and no Jewish identity at all. So I, I, it really came as a shock to me to find there was depth and there was spirituality and there was meaning in Torah. But I think one of the things I can say about myself was spirituality and the search for God was not new to me. And therefore I had been around the world and I had experienced very profound spiritual experience and very profound self-development. Um, and to find that there was deep ideas within my own heritage, my own Masora, which were relevant to me, that was that was the shock and that was the surprise. And that was a wonderful thing. And then I, I moved to Eretz Yisrael and I learned in Yeshiva um, for, for more than a decade. Um, so for me, what the challenge was, was a slow awakening. And I'm afraid as a pachet, it's a fear to say this out loud. I know I can say this in front of you. So I'm pretending no one else is listening right now. But the challenge was that the more I learned... Um, and I love Torah, and I love Limud Torah, and I love the Kehillahs that I was a part of, and, and Zorch to be a part of. But the more I became a teacher, and the more I became a rabbi, and the more people would come to me with that solace, it could have been what we call the troubled youth going off the derch. Today I hold they're not the troubled youth, today I hold they're, they're the ones who are passionately seeking answers and connection, and, and to some degree I feel more confident in their future, because at least they can acknowledge the challenge. But there were people who had shalom bias issues, the people were, were, were connected to the derch halimud, and that originally was just a few people, became more and more and more and more that I was exposed to. And I turned back to my Rabbonim and some of the Gadoilim and I spoke to them about this issue. And if I was honest about myself, how much did I feel a true, deep connection relationship with Hashem through the Torah and Mitzvahs that I was Oisik in Yaman Velayla? And uh, the more I talked about this with Chevra and with different, all people of different Ashkafas, the more I realized we're something which is well known today and it's difficult to say out loud, which is basically we have an issue of epidemic proportions today. That the, 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 the disconnection within, within the Fumvelt and within the Torah world, as much as we are Fum, for the Fumness it is more a cultural statement and a commitment to be Yerush to keep two meters, but it's not a statement of we are living and breathing a wondrous, powerful, transformative reality in our connection to Hashem. Um, and then for me, there was a challenge that I had to ask. Why are so many people growing in the external world in spiritual connection? And that's already a confronting, a confronting statement. How can you have 
spiritual connection in a secular <laughs> sense when Torah Mitzvah is about that, right? Um, I'd like to hear how you answer that. I, I think you can say that, and I, I think that there's enough of the holy works of our tradition that say that, that Tikkun Amidus and Devekis is the foundation for Torah and Mitzvahs. As I often say in my classes, to think that the more the more we keep and the more details we, we, we follow and, and strict details in our Mitzvah observance, that that will get us to Devekis, that will get us to connection. That, that's not true, and often the more strict people find themselves, the more things they take on, the more be, they become disconnected from themselves and a feeling of relationship. So I always say that, that, that the mitzvahs that we keep and the chumas that we keep is, is not to get us to the vakas, but it's an expression of a devakas, it's an expression of the Avas Hashem, of the love we feel, of the true tangible spiritual connection that we experience on a daily level. Um, and the more I had to confront that, I, I did not see that frequently before my eyes. And when so many people were saying, well, why don't we go back to the world of psychology, of spiritual? Why don't we integrate Buddhism within our own path? So the more I was like, no, I didn't give up all those things to now go back to them. That's not what I came for. I believe with Amunah Shalema that this must be within the world of Torah. This must be in, in the Svarim. And, and I spent, you know, this is the long answer to your short question, um, but I spent, you know, the, 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 the better half of the last seven, eight years um, Basically, here was the plan, and the plan was, could we map out the twofold, all of human consciousness and psychology from Torah sources? Every human experience, everything you could see, understanding of psychology, of physical health, of transcendent experience, could we understand from Musa, from Chassidus, from Kabbalah, from Chazal, from the Rambam, from the Ramchal, could we put that together? And rather than saying there's many different shooters, maybe there is. But from my learning and my rabbanim, I knew that the more panemius you go, the more you can see the achdus, the unity behind everything. And Aleph, if we could crack that code, then could we also not just make, you know, divrei Torah or a mahalach or a blueprint. Torah is a blueprint. Torah is not, not just supposed to be the blueprint. It's not just supposed to be the ultimate theory. It's supposed to translate into the ultimate practice that we could plug in that map and turn it on. And, and, and really begin to access true transformative tefillah, true spiritual experience. Not something that a person has to be ecstatic to attain, but amech kulam sadikim. That every one of us, you know, and any, all our madregas are shy after true living a supernatural spiritual transformative connection. Um, and now I'm embarrassed to say out loud and in public, there's been tremendous siyata dishmaya. We believe we, we've able, able to deliver that. We were packaging, packaging that into something we call the Elevation Project. And, and we believe that we have. I know we're talking a little about, you know, the future of Orthodox Judaism. So this, we believe this deeply goes beyond the Orthodox Jewish world and the Torah observant world, whatever the word orthodoxy means and religious and secular means, that we believe that Torah was supposed to be a contribution to all of humanity. And it was a certainly supposed to be a contribution to every single Jew. And when for the first time what we've seen, I just came back from South Africa and, and I'm, I'm, there's many stories to tell, but we literally spoke before 7,000 people. Um, there's a baby worth 7,000 and 8,000. And the chief rabbi of South, South Africa said to us that the response that they saw to this material was unprecedented. Um, and anything they've ever seen before, from religious to secular, every kind of Jew responded because at a heart, we deeply desire connection, spiritual connection, trans, that mitzvahs should transform us and connect us and elevate us. And, and we don't believe yet that our, our generation has had a clear mahalach, a clear path, practical, both theoretical intelligence 
and also transformative and experiential to access that. So what we've got now is we've got this whole system. We're building a curriculum. We're empowering educators around the world in Kiev infrastructure and yeshivas and seminaries and kahilas all around the world to get access to this. Thank God what we really believe with all our hearts is one of the most beautiful, powerful things happening now in education. A lot of Abonim are coming on that train as well. And, and we're excited to take it to the world. I think we're out of time, and that was just your first question, so you forgive me. <laughs> well, you know, I do the same thing to people, and I tell people, push the button, get the lecture. So <laughs> You started me off at the most passionate you know, subject of my life. There you so, go. We can jump right in. self to blame, but, but I think. So I, I should have been taking notes because there were so many things that I wanted to touch on as you were going on. I'm like, if he stops here, I'll say this. If he stops here, I'll say that. And I just stopped doing that. So, You'll cut me off. Fine. <laughs> so there were a couple of things that, um, that I wanted to go on. First of all, you asked me a question, which was a great question, which was, you know, how do you approach people finding out that there's wisdom outside of Torah? And for some people, this is like a shock. And they're like, yeah. it breaks their world because they've thought that that's not true. So first of all, you know, I'm very preventative in nature. I want people not to have to think that. So I want us to say that less often and to actually talk a little bit about that their wisdom out there is sometimes pretty good. And they know what they're doing sometimes. I, I, in fact, one of the epiphanies for this for me was the Asifa, the Internet Asifa a couple of years ago, mm-hmm. because the, the, the entire premise for the Asifa was the outside world is, is, is allowing everything on the Internet to, to come to their homes and to their children. And to, they're no, they don't care about this. We care about this. We're leading the charge. And I was laughing to myself. I'm like, if you buy an Apple computer, the salesperson says, would you like help setting up parental controls? Like, <laughs> this is something that has been built into society for a long time. So stop taking credit when you're, when you're years behind. So I, I liked the idea that we should try and find areas and where we can learn from others where they're doing maybe better than us in some ways or ahead of us. The, the, we're a small people and we've got a small amount of people that are accessing Torah. It's, inevitable that there will be things that we miss so i i have to say it's what you're saying you know we've discussed this before i deeply resonate resonate with what you're saying but there's a big hashkafic leap that we have to make to talk that out right which is if we have the blueprint of all reality and if everything is within torah you know we have to be able to talk out why should i have to go to psychology why should right. i have to go to self-help why should i have to learn mindfulness Right, because isn't all that in Torah, right? And, and I think that's worth you and I talking out that. You know, there's a. I was in London lecturing a, a couple of years back, and I was staying in a wonderful home of a very, very hush of people in the Kela. And there was a very popular thing happening in London, which is a kind of mindfulness program, which is run by Goyim together with a certain group of Jews there. And every the whole 400 Yidden went there from Yidden. They were all mispiled. They were very affected by that. And the Rebbitzin, I came home. The Rebbitzin said. Now, I was, I was very shocked by what I saw. And the Rebbitzin said to me... Well, wait, 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 what do you mean you were shocked? What were you shocked? Well, I'll talk that out in a second, okay. right? It's important to say. The Rebbitzin said to me, why, why are so many Yidin going there? Don't we all have that in Perkei Avos, <laughs> right? Now, now, part of me wanted to laugh at her. And no, part of me wanted to laugh at her. And part of me wanted to laugh with her. Let me say she's an extraordinary woman of intelligence and depth. And I, and I just said, this is my answer. And I, I hope it wasn't offensive. And I hope it wasn't <laughs> over-reductionistic. Um, and I said it with all the love and compassion I can muster, and, and my, my heart bleeds for us. Just I, I, be, I wasn't that, you know, asking those questions the year before. I said, <laughs> you know what? Maya achuz, it's all in Perkei Avos, a hundred percent. But when your child is having an emotional breakdown, you send him to a therapist. <laughs> now I can show you everywhere in Perkei Avos that that is, but the problem is it's still just words on a page. Right. Revolbi said, I, I sat with someone who walked out of Revolbi. This person's a top therapist in Baltimore um, and in Lakewood, I'm sorry. And the, the, the person said, Revolbi just told me, right? 
Ravolbi just told me, he said, today, every, every yeshiva, every seminary, he said, every yeshiva needs a Rosh Hashiva, a mashkiach, and a therapist. You know that before but, I, uh, I, I, before I became, I went to law school when I was in my early 20s, my, my ambition career-wise was mm-hmm. to become a therapist and work in yeshivas. That was my, you're, I said, that's the gap. That's missing. You're still being a therapist. I don't <laughs> think that's changed, even though you, you, you know, you have a lawyer degree to look, look like a different kind of vein. But yeah, you're, you're doing it. You're, you're speaking it, right? It's, it's an emotional resonance, emotional depth. It's dealing with the people's reality. And every mishpia who really deals with people's reality knows that this is what, where the money is. This is where the troubles are. This is where the success will be. Right. Right. So what I'm saying is what I want to come back to the Nakuda is that what, what we see there is there is something out there. Now this is, you know, almost sacrilegious. If people don't know, I'm a Fumir and I hopefully on a good day, Yerushamayim, <laughs> right? I'm saying with this backing of, you know, lots of Vibanum. That, that there's much, I, I, there's one Makubal that I know that I'm Zerchi to be close with and he's considered by many to be, you know, the God of the door in his understanding of, of all of Kabbalah and all of, of Torah is a Moradik, a cup. And, you know, there's a Mahalach that he says, and he says that there's, he brings down for the Zohar and Pashas Vieira. I can't remember if we discussed this before. And he says, just, just without going through the whole Torah, it's one of the most extraordinary Torahs that ever you to know in our generation. But Bekitza, at the end of day, is what's going to happen, like Pashas Noach. The, the Zohar brings from Pashas Noach, that the waters opened from above, and the waters came from below, and the waters flooded the earth. And the Zohar says that towards the time of the Ikhvaseh the Mashiach, before Mashiach comes, the waters from above will open. And the Zohar says that that is the, the Chachmas Emes of Kabbalah, of the mystical understandings. That was the Vilnagan, the Ramchal, the Baal Shem Tov. And it also says the waters of below will open. Now, this is a, a moiridic statement, and it may be confronting to people, right? And it's kind of, I'll probably regret saying this out loud, um, but I would never say it from my, my own mouth and from my own understanding. But the waters. Oh, who are below, you kidding? You really would. <laughs> I, I, I I'm much feel nervous in my stomach saying this out loud. Right? That the waters from below are secular knowledge and secular wisdom. And the Rambam held that for himself it was extremely important to get that. And the Vilna Gon was Messiah, all of secular wisdom. And, and this Makubal told me, when I say Makubal, I'm talking, you know, a, not a Makubal as in, you know, just something weird. A, a, and with the Haskamas from all, all the Godoy and he says to me, this whole Mahalach, he says, it's a Moiradika thing. He says, the secular wisdom is fallen Torah. Secular knowledge is fallen Torah. Why, why is it Torah? It's Torah because there's emis within it. It's fallen because of two things. Science is imperfect because it's a process. Torah speaks emis. You know, Perke Avas does have therapy, but we don't yet know what the Kalim, how to master that. The Goyim are masters of developing the Kalim, but first of all, science is a process, meaning we're only halfway through the research. We don't know if we understand all of, all of psychology yet, all of science yet. We've just got the pieces. The other thing is now that you understand the science, you don't see how that connects to the Achtas of the whole Bria and the Tachlas of Bria, the purpose Precisely, of life. Precisely, right. But Torah has the map. But we don't currently have the Kalim. There's a, there's a famous book called the Kol HaTor by the main, some of the closest students of the Vilna Gaon. And what it says is, it's almost an Oynesh. It says there's auras that Hashem wants to bring into the world at the end of days. And there's a degree we will be able to attack in our midas faster than any other generation previously. But if the Yidin are not Roy, if we're not Zoycha, then that information will go to the Goyim and we will have to reintegrate it back into Torah. Interesting. So I would say that, I mean, you know, you speak because of your, uh, because of your wisdom and knowledge and experience in this realm, you speak about it in, in, in different words, but it's really the same idea when I talk about this, because you, you were asking earlier how I, how I approach this. And I think that, you know, I talk in very practical terms. I try not to use a word that doesn't have 
a simple English explanation because I know that for the complicated words, it means different things for different people. So Good. I appreciate that. Right. So my my, but you know, I when I'm not talking for you, you know, your your experience and your expertise on on the level that you're talking about for 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 the for the stuff you're talking about. I think the the hard words are the only words that you can use. But when I what I say is basically, if you believe the Torah is true, and if you believe that the Torah is something that is supposed to be relevant and be, and be and be part of the world forever, then it's not just an accident. In other words, it's not that like uh, there's a world and there's a Torah and like you know there's a world and the Torah is on top of it. You live that Torah and the world on top of it. Mm-hmm. If you believe it's true, you believe it from God, you believe it from the same source. It's like you can tell if you're a student of a of, of an artist, of let's say a Picasso. If there's a mm-hmm. painting and you're a real student and you another painting and somebody says I think this is a Picasso, you can say with certainty almost either it is or right. it isn't. There's a signature. So you're if, tuned into that. You're exactly. Tuned in. it's a, that's Torah. You're not you know not. It's a it's a sensitivity to what the truth is, what what the devar Hashem is, and you recognize that in many places. So here's you what know, happens. I, I, I would add to what you said before. Our connection to Torah, this kashras to Torah and das Torah, is not most of make us afraid of the rest of the world. It's supposed to give us access and clarity to see what is emes in the rest of the world, right? Right. And that, that's a whole beautiful, you know, I, I heard a beautiful quote recently that I heard is that Torah was never there to cut us off from the rest of the world. Torah was there to stop us from cutting us off from our inner self. I agree completely. Um, and, you know, that's a whole different mahalach. It's a whole different sensitivity and one that's sorely lacking in the world today. Right. So when we see wisdom on the outside, the, the, the question is not where, how do they have that if they don't have Torah? The answer is very obvious. The world is the same author, the same artist as the Torah. So if you can, how do the scientists know this? How do they get there? How do they find out stuff? How does, how does, how does a psychologist know how to help people? How does a therapist know how to help people? The wisdom is something that they've discovered from the world. So the right. world is just like the practical application of what's already out there in the Torah's words, and the application is the world, and if you can spend the effort and the time to actually learn it from the world, it's observation. Science is observation. It's not theory. It's theory, but it's theory that you get developed through observation. So if you're observing the world, and you see right. something, then you're saying that what you see is really a, a form of Torah, because the world and Torah come from the same place. So, and this is Eov, from, exactly. from my flesh, from the body, from the physical reality, I can perceive truth. And the only thing we have to add, and it is worth refining, is, and I think you said this, I'm just bringing it out, that a person could be a scientist, and a person can, the more they learn science, say, well, there's no such thing as God. A person could be a scientist and say, through the the nifla, it's the wonders that I see in the physical world. Now I understand how the physical works, and I understand God. So what Torah, I think, is supposed to do is tune our hearts and tune our sensitivities to go into the world of science, of technology, of psychology, and to understand where the emis lies. And that's what we call in the mystical writings to be oil of nichlal, to draw that up and out and reintegrate that into Torah. And then one is mashlem the other. Shemaim is mashlem the aretz, and the aretz is mashlem shemaim. And that's what we call achtas. And that, that, this is what brings Mashiach. That's why the whole world, Malaharetz Deya Es Hashem, the whole world, the whole Aretz will reveal Hashem. And because there's a Shlemus that the Torah is revealed everywhere. Right. And uh, that, that I think we're transitioning into that period now. Could, could I offer a very clear example of this, which I think it shows a beautiful balance between, say, Torah and secular psychology, how they marry together? By all means, please. Um, th- this was a really deep awakening for me. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll save you the whole story about how I came about this. Well, we can but, continue but, after the hour is over. How's that? 
Okay, yeah, be with me and you on out. private, do, but we have to finish before the show's out. over. I think Afomi is here with the studio. He'd like to join us as well. <laughs> He's nodding a little. So here we go. Yeah, he doesn't mind. Free coffee. So the, the kids, are, the, the, there's, there's, a, there's a therapy, which is, if you know anything about you know, cutting-edge therapy today, it's, it's the World Health Organization rep- recommends this as one of the top you know, two or three therapies in the world. It's something called EMDR. Eye yes. movement, um, reprocessing and, and something. I can't remember what it is. Yes, very, what very, very cutting edge and very, it's actually being applied more and more. It's, it's now, it's now, you know, the American Psychiatric Association highly recommends it. It's one of the main, if not the main trauma therapy. It's worked on millions of people and all the war vets, you know, that come out of Iraq and all these, these kind of things. Sex abuse but, victims as well. Sex abuse, and it's incredibly successful. It's being documented scientifically to be massively successful. Now, I'll show you the whole story how I found this. But because if you open up a a book by the the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov called Savasa Rivash, (laughs) and you open up to Torah Pei, number 80, you will see in a line and a half the entire therapy explained. And uh, the line begins, I don't have it in front of me now, He begins by saying, if sometimes the chumrius, and chumrius in Hasidus means the tithe or the guy or the kin or the covet, all the negative intense emotions, they get in the way and they're a masach and they stop you from accessing your neshama. He says, if you move your eyes back and forward, he says, you look from side to side continuously, then it puts you into a state of devakus and it melts away the clippers. Now, when I saw that, what you realize, this for me, I use this frequently an example of what's happening in our generation. I, I say, you know, with a lot of, of busha, I, I honestly hold that the last contribution we made to, to the world as, as Jews, as Torah Yidin, is basic, basically ethical monotheism, which is roughly 3,000 years ago. <laughs> it's been that. a while. <laughs> right? I appreciate we have some nice different Torah to offer people. I teach some of that different Torah. I'm also part of that problem, right? And, and all the chizik and all the Torah, we still have, you know, massive, unprecedented numbers of Jews who are disconnected. Um, and we can talk about those problems until the cows come home, as my mother would say. But imagine what we did was 280 to 300 years ago. We went to market by transforming the consciousness of the world with a technique like that. Now, we can say, but isn't that all on this forum? The answer is yes, but they found, you know, actually how it was found by a nice Jewish woman, a secular psychologist called Francine Shapiro, who was walking down the street one day and she was dealing with a little stress. And she happened to notice, this is exactly what you said, that if she moves her eyes back and forward, hey, look what happens. My fear and anxiety melt away. She happened to be a psychologist. She started doing research. She started documenting this. They build massive international organizations infrastructure, right? So imagine not only did we have that, imagine we went to town on that. Imagine mm-hmm. outreach was a model of massive self-transformation. I, and the question yeah. I have to then say is, if that is in there, what else is in there? What else is in there that's already being done? And more than that, what else is in there that they haven't worked out that we could come to town to be a true light to the nations, to be a true light to those 10 million disconnected Jews, to be a light to our own selves, to really transform ourselves. Right. That, that's an incredible example. That's and it a great shows example. the massive potential. Right. And it goes in all directions as well. There are times where you can see something in the secular world that maybe has been either never known or lost from the Orthodox Jewish world. Or right. from the Torah world. And they, you hear something like, oh, wow, that actually helps me understand something that's in Torah. And now uh-huh. it, then you can bring it back by using that explanation and that interpretation of Torah to then re-inspire re- that secular teaching and make that even more religious and spiritual and more meaningful because now you've had, it, you've had two parts of it um, being contributed from, from, from two different opposite spectrum. I actually want to get to one last thing before we uh, wrap this up. Sure. And 
the reason we I, go for coffee together. Yes. <laughs> it's going to be a long coffee. So the, the we've done this before. The <laughs> the the reason um, I asked this question is because I know what a lot of listeners might be thinking. They might be thinking, look, this is because you are on the fringe, I'm on the fringe, we're dealing with the people on the outside, and I know that I've had conversations with really you know, serious people, rabbis, and they're like, look, I get what you're saying, but this is not a problem that everybody deals with. This is like you know, a few weird people. Generally, we're doing awesome. Everything is awesome, as they say. <laughs> but there's a little bit of small things that you guys have to deal with, like, but don't, don't, don't make it sound like this is everybody. And there's a lot of skepticism, and they say, you know, I don't want to. Ch- we don't need to change anything. Everything's fine. We we don't need to change. The only things we need to change are like the people that are not doing well. So like for them, it's okay. How do you? Res- I'm sure you've heard that because the, I know I've heard. The at-risk youth. Our only our only issue is the at-risk youth. Exactly. And everybody else is doing fine. Right. So th- th- listen, this is this is a delicate conversation because you know I, I'm going to ask I'm going to flip the question over in a way that I do. Why do I have to explain it to that person? <laughs> Because, because you know, this is a thing. As an educator, on a good day, you try and be a bit more sophisticated educator, and you everyone can spend the whole time trying to bang home their agendas. Um, but at the end of the day, part of education is listen to what a person believes and where they're coming from and why they need to think what they think. Unfortunately, for better or for worse, I've spent ten years teaching thousands, literally tens of thousands, of units around the world. I have those kind of classes where everyone comes up to me in the end and thinks that they can, I can solve their problems. <laughs> Whether it's right or wrong, it's probably wrong, but we all do a shtadlis. And sometimes they're a bonum, and sometimes they're big mishpiam. And I've cried in the offices of the top mishpiam in the world, the top mishpiam in America. And I'm telling you, when you cry, I tell you they cry back and they say, I know, I know it's too much pain to handle. When that wonderful yid comes to me, rarely, and says what you just said, If the person's heart was open to listen (laughs) and was curious and it was Malay Avas Yisrael and really wanted to help their brother, the two questions I would ask them to consider is in the depth of your heart, how connected, how passionate, how besimcha, how much ruchnius do you feel in your day? Right? That's Aleph. And maybe they'll go, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. And maybe they are. Right. I believe them. I actually believe them. Okay. So I I can believe. I know that some people can't confront that. And I know some people are. So that's Aleph. So it can go either way. The other thing is, I would say, take 20 chever from your shul, sit around a table and ask the question, how is everybody going? And go and speak to the Rav of the Kehillah and say, how is Kleisel going? Let's not talk about the off the derech kids. Let, let's talk about the society, the culture, the families that sent them off the derech. The people that and are saying, in shul. What's that? You ask the ones who are in shul. Ask the ones in shul. How's everybody going? How's Shalom Ba'ez going? Are we connected? Are we passionate about Torah I'm not saying this to make anyone feeling bad. I'm saying, and I, I sound like Mumish, the biggest Bella guy, but it's probably because I am. We're holding by the Teretz. Right. I've spoken to the biggest people. We know the Teretz. We know the Tsaras. We know the reality. And we're not here to, the one thing I, I feel for the first time in my life, incredibly besimcha to say what I'm now. Why? Because we have a teret. We have a solution. If I didn't have a solution, I didn't think I could be a, you know that line, if you're not part of the problem, you're part of the solution. If you're part, part, the part of the solution, you're part of the problem. <laughs> right. So the book is, I'm so biased that one way, it's hard for me to say it. It would be, this would be the most depressing you know, half an hour of radio. Everyone's suffering in the class well, much more than you think. Uh, now we're going to commercial break and have a nice day. <laughs> Right, we I'm have saying, we have answers. That's exactly we, correct. The, the, the Torah has it within us. The problem is not a lacking in Torah. The problem is a, a lacking in the depth to which we've explored Torah. 
and the Torah will deliver. And the Svarim say, by the way, that this challenge is happening at the end of days because we're going to go deeper into Torah than ever before and we're going to be Megala, the deepest, most beautiful part of Torah. And that mechanism itself is what's going to trigger Mashiach. And therefore, we're right on track if we can confront it. If you're not troubled by it as an individual, you don't see it. I said, you're wonderful. Kolokavad, keep going. Spread your chizik to others and keep going. But there's enough of us that realize the challenge. There's enough of us that are looking for solutions. And holy Eden, like you, and as many of them we can find, we have to gather together and we have to find wonderful answers. And the Torah is deep enough and Hashem loves us, loves, loves us enough it will deliver. It's right, Hashem. Beautiful. I am so glad that you came on here. I wish that I had a 12-hour radio show that we could talk for a little longer. But uh, unfortunately, I'm I'm only I'm only granted a one hour slot, so we can continue, we'll, we will continue this conversation uh, many times in many places over many years. And I appreciate Wonderful. you coming on today. I appreciate everything you've said, and I appreciate everything you're doing. If people want to hear more about the Elevation Project, where will they find it? I'll give them my personal telephone number. Not really. <laughs> I'm not that stupid, but I have been for the last ten years. Uh, we have a little web page. We're putting up another one about three months. They can go to the elevationseminar.com. They can sign up for the email. We start, hope to start announce the launch of events and seminars and curriculums. We want to train teachers in the coming months. They're welcome to sign up there. I just want to say kolokavad to the work you're doing, and uh, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. I hope we get the opportunity again in the future as well. I'm looking forward to it. So everyone, uh, the theelevationseminar.com, it's one word, and it includes the word the. Please visit that website. Please sign up for the uh, the emails so that you can be ready for it. Please attend an Elevation Seminar. Please learn from Rabbi Daniel Katz, and please help the world to heal itself <laughs> with the things that we have. Um, the, end, the, the end of this show is always with, with, with a song from my, my good friend, Ali Schwebel, who you're also friends with, Rabbi Katz. Uh, and, and, and the beauty of, uh, of this conversation is that it leads right into our song that we end with, which is Don't Stop Giving Love, because really the, the, the difference between the world of... of of love that cares about each person and finding their truth and finding their joy and simcha sachayim and avodah sashem and the person that says you have to fit into what I already determined that is the difference between what you and I are talking about and with, mm. with, with what, what we're trying to, we're trying to change Amen can you hear it son until next time everyone don't stop giving love are you big in your heart are you true at the core Get a feeling like you're bottoming out and you're lost in the dark. A low road, so appealing. Walk in the shadows, high.